You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. All right, well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Matthew chapter 13, or Matthew 16, sorry, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13 is where we will be uh, together this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, you know, we got to start off uh, the first service uh, with baptisms, uh, which is a great way uh, to start uh, my first Sunday uh, as your pastor. Um, not, yeah, absolutely. We're celebrating. Uh, what is not so great is starting off on Time Change Sunday. Uh, so um, obviously it wasn't a pastor who decided that time would change on Sundays. Uh, I think it should change on Tuesdays. Personally, Domino says that's the most neglected day of the week. Um, so... Matthew chapter 16 uh, is where we'll be today. Um, I was doing a little reading this week and I came across this statistic that nearly a thousand people move to Florida every day. Uh, In the first quarter of 2021, there were 4,530 new homes built in central Florida alone. It seems like wherever a house can be built right now, they are building a house. If you drive through my neighborhood, uh, if there are woods, there used to be woods and now there's a house going in uh, is what it feels like. Uh, My 12 minute drive from my house uh, to the church this morning, uh, I drove past three different uh, subdivisions, newer subdivisions that are going in that have yet to be completed. Uh, The smallest one uh, is right around 100 homes. Uh, And so to say that uh, people are building things, I think uh, is probably an understatement, right? People are building a lot of things and it's not just homes, uh, but we have stores and we have restaurants and we have all kinds of things uh, being built all around us. Uh, Now, uh, one of the things that's true of these things that are being built is this, is that none of these homes, none of these stores, none of these restaurants will last forever, In fact, it won't take long for these new homes to start having paint that is scuffed and faucets that leak and holes in the walls and weeds in the yard. Because nothing that we build is designed to last forever. And nothing that we build is meant to last forever. But this morning, we're going to look at something that Jesus has promised to build. We're going to look at Jesus' promise to build His church. Now, here in Matthew 16, we have Jesus promising his disciples that he will build his church, which is a community of disciples throughout all time and all places. And so as we look at Matthew 16, we see this truth, that the church that Jesus builds has nothing to worry about. The church that Jesus built has nothing to worry about, or the church built on Jesus has nothing to worry about. Now, when we talk about the church here in this passage, when Jesus is talking about the church here in this passage, uh, he's not just talking about local churches, right? When Jesus is talking about the church here, he's talking about the universal church, the the capital C church, the church throughout uh, all time and uh, all places and all spaces. And it's this church that he is promising to build. And so here in Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see what Jesus has to say uh, about the church. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the verses on the screen for you. Matthew 16, uh, beginning in verse 13, the Spirit says to us this morning. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in your goodness. Uh, Father, I pray that you would be with us now, that you would speak to us through your word, that, that you would teach us what we need to know, that you would conform us into the image of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage here in Matthew 16, we see a few truths about the church. We see Jesus building a, a theology, a doctrine of the church. And the first truth we see is this, is the church's confession. The church's confession. Now, uh, maybe when you think about the word confession, uh, your mind goes to a place of, I need to confess what I have done. Right? I, I need to get this off my chest. I, I, I need to, I need to get, get this out, get this out into the air. But that's not the kind of confession that we see here. Uh, here we see what we must believe, right? The confession here isn't what you've done, but what you must believe. And here we see the right confession about Jesus. And what we see is that there is security, there is comfort in getting Jesus right, because the church built on Jesus has nothing to worry about. Now, as you look here in verse 13, we read, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and now Caesarea Philippi is Gentile territory. Uh, this is a place, uh, this is a region, this is an area that is given over to pagan worship. So if you were to walk into this city, you would see a couple of temples. The first temple that you would see is a temple that's dedicated to the worship of, of the god Pan. And this is the God of nature. This is where we get our word pantheism from, that, that God is in nature. And so you would walk into this community and you would see this temple dedicated to the worship of this God that is supposedly in all of nature. But as you keep walking, you would come to a second temple. And that second temple is a temple that's dedicated to the worship of the emperor dedicated to the worship of Caesar. That's, in fact, where this community gets its name. They had changed their name at one point in their history. And so Caesarea, that is Caesar, right? That's, a, that's an ode to Caesar. And so here in this pagan Gentile territory, Jesus asked this question. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, just in that question, we need to stop and we need to uh, take note of what does Jesus call himself? He calls himself the son of man. In fact, this is Jesus's favorite self-designation. This is Jesus's favorite thing to be called. He, he refers to himself over and over again as the son of man. And that's important because it really captures why Jesus came. See, Jesus came to seek and to save and to serve. He came to seek and to save the lost, and he has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that title, Son of Man, it really captures why did Jesus come? Why is Jesus here? Why has Jesus come to earth? 
And so he asked his disciples, well, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he asked his disciples because he knows that his disciples have been with the people. They've been in the multitudes. And what he knows is that there's confusion over who he is, but, but there's pretty wide agreement that Jesus is someone special. Look at verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See, there's confusion over who Jesus is, but they all recognize that this Jesus, this is someone special. This is someone that the Lord is using in a mighty way. And so if you look at that list of men, those are all men that the Lord has used. But what's interesting is they're all men that are dead. And so what the crowd is assuming, the crowd is assuming that this Jesus is, is one of the prophets from John the Baptist all the way back. One of the prophets that has been resurrected and is now walking among them. Now, they're wrong, but they're not that far off. See, obviously, these were people who knew their Old Testament well. These were people, their answers they gave were biblically informed. So if you were to flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you look at verses 15 to 18, you would see where the Lord makes a promise to raise up a prophet like Moses. If you were to flip over to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, you would read where Malachi prophesies that, that on that great, what he calls awesome day of the Lord, that Elijah is going to come back. But people would say that, well, this Jesus, he is, this must be Jeremiah resurrected because the ministry that Jesus had up to this point looked much like the ministry of Jeremiah. And so there's all of this confusion over who Jesus is. Now, we should be careful not to think that confusion over who Jesus is is kept just in his day. See, there's confusion over who Jesus is today. In 2018 and then in 2020, uh, Ligonier Ministries, our, our friends right down the road here, uh, they commissioned a survey. They called it the, the State of Theology Survey. And they just wanted to get at the heart of what do Americans believe? What, not only what does the average American believe, but what they also did was they wanted to find out what does the average evangelical in America believe? And so they had several questions that they asked and they would say true or false. They wanted you to agree or disagree with the statement. And here's one of the statements that they made. They said, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. True or false? And so 52% of American adults agreed with that statement. 52% of American adults agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. Now, you might hear that and you might say, hey, that's, that's pretty good. That means 48% of Americans believe that Jesus is God. But what you begin to see as you look a little bit further into it is about 36% of those, of that 48%, they aren't sure. They, they don't know. So that really leaves about 12% who would say, yes, Jesus is God. Now, it's not that surprising, right? We, we should expect the culture to have confusion uh, about who Jesus is. But what about within the church? What about what does the average evangelical believe about who Jesus is? So the average evangelical, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, true or false? 30% of American evangelicals agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. It's about a third of the church in America today 
would say that Jesus, really good teacher, but not God. See, there's confusion over who Jesus is, not just out there, but also in here. There's confusion about who Jesus is, not just in the world, but also in the church. And so I'm just going to go ahead and let you know what the right answer is. If you get that phone call, is Jesus God? The answer is always yes, right? That's always the answer. Jesus is God. And so look at verse 15. We see what the crowds say about who Jesus is. But in verse 15, we have a much more personal question. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? See, this is what he really wants to know. He really wants to know, well, who do the disciples, who do his closest followers, who do they say that Jesus is? And this is this most important question. It leads to the most important statement ever made. In verse 16, we're going to have Peter answer this question. Now, it's important to notice that Jesus asked this question to all of the disciples, but Peter alone answers. See, Peter alone answers because he's going to act in this scene as a representative for the rest of the disciples. So he's speaking on behalf of the disciples. In verse 16, look at his answer. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. What Peter's saying here is that Jesus is the one who fulfills all that Israel had hoped for. Jesus is the Messiah who has come. He's the one that Israel had been longing for, the one that Israel had been looking to see, but he doesn't just stop there. He says, you are the Christ. That word Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah, but he doesn't stop at Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, Jesus isn't just another man. Jesus is God. Jesus isn't just another man who God is raising up to be the liberator of his people. Because remember, what Israel thought was going to happen, they thought that this Jesus was coming as a political Messiah. He was coming as a political savior. He was going to free them from rule and oppression of the Romans. And Jesus did come to free us from rule and oppression, but he did not come to free us from rule and oppression of other governments. He came to free us from the rule and oppression of sin that reigns over us. And so what Peter's saying here, he's saying, Jesus has not come as just another man. No, Jesus is God. Jesus has come as the son of God. And so Jesus has not come to, to just be another guy, right? When we say that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the anointed one, he isn't one who's been anointed by us. He wasn't anointed by the disciples. No, Jesus is the anointed one because God the Father has anointed the son to come and be the Messiah. Right At his baptism, we, we hear the voice of the Father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so Peter answers this question that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you didn't get this on your own. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered him, blessed are you. So this is kind of like a beatitude. Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. This is Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, Peter, you didn't come to this conclusion on your own. You weren't smart enough to get it, essentially, is what he's saying. 
He's saying, Peter, you know, you know how you got this? Because my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. See, what Jesus is saying is that this is an act of God's grace in Peter's life. And, and the same is true of us as well. When we encounter who Jesus is and what He has done, when our hearts are illumined and our eyes are opened to who Jesus is, we don't get there because we studied hard enough for the test. We don't get there because we were smart enough to get it. We get there because God the Father has revealed it to us. So if you've encountered Jesus, then that's God's grace at work in your life. Now this church that is built on this Jesus has nothing to worry about. And we see, we see why here in the next section. So we've got the, the church's confession. Next we see this, the church's foundation. The church's foundation. Now verse 18 contains one of the greatest promises in the New Testament. It's promised that Jesus will build his church. There's no question about what's going to happen. There's no question about what Jesus is going to do. It's guaranteed. The church will be built by Jesus, and this church built by Jesus and on Jesus has nothing to worry about. Now, verse 18, this is, believe it or not, one of the most debated verses in all of the Bible. This verse has led to schisms and divisions and fractions. So look at verse 18 with me. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, our Roman Catholic friends, they would look at this passage, they would look at this verse, and they'd say, look, this is obvious evidence for a pope. Now, evangelicals, we have said, well, not so fast. There's, there's something else happening here. There's something more happening here. And so we've said, well, well this is talking about Peter. Maybe it's talking about Peter's confession. And so how do we understand this verse? How do we understand this, that, that this is Peter and on this rock Christ will build his church? Well, I think the, the key to answering, the key to clarity on this question is that little conjunction, that word and. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. Now, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, then you know that Peter uh, it, this is a play on words that, that Peter is uh, the, the Greek word for rock and, and then rock, right? So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you are the rock and on this rock, I will build my church. And so what does it mean that Peter is the rock? Well, just as Peter represented the disciples when he answered the question of who Jesus is, here he represents the disciples as the rock on which Christ is building his church. And so we can't deny that the Lord uses Peter in a special way in the founding, in the early parts of the church. If you go to Acts, the, the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, you see Peter's ministry. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's the one who preaches at Pentecost and the, the Spirit comes and we, we see Peter's ministry, but then in Acts 15, he disappears. And so we can't deny that the Lord uses Peter in a special way, but the Lord also has pretty strong words for Peter. In fact, if you were to keep reading here in Acts or in Matthew chapter 16, you'd come a little later on to where Jesus, he doesn't just call Peter the rock, he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? He calls Peter Satan. Now, uh, I, I would hate to be called a name by Jesus, especially the name Satan. Right? That, that is not what you want to be called uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. But hey, nonetheless, that's what he does. He, he says, Peter, get behind me. You're, you're acting like Satan. 
And so when he says here that Peter is the rock, and on this rock he will build his church, Peter's representing the disciples and the apostles that they're teaching. That this is the foundation on which Jesus will build his church. So if we had time, we could look over at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. We read that the church, that the household of God, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You could go to Revelation chapter 21. You could look at verse 14. There it says in the New Jerusalem, the, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. See, the foundation of the church is the confession and the teaching of the apostles. In other words... The foundation of the church is the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus saves. And how do we know? Well, we know it through the Bible. We know it through God's word. This week, uh, a pastor of a large church in Atlanta, uh, he, made, uh, he made the news for some things that he said. Uh, one of the things he said, he said was this. He said, and this is me paraphrasing. He said, our faith as Christians isn't tied to 66 ancient books. In other ways, our faith isn't tied to the Bible. Our faith is tied to a person. It's tied to Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds spiritual. And in some ways, there are things about it we could affirm, right? That our faith is in Jesus. That statement's completely wrong. Because how do you know Jesus apart from the 66 books of the Bible that he's given us? How do you know Jesus apart from the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? And so Jesus, he says, Peter, you're a rock and on this rock, I'm going to build my church on this confession, on this foundation, on this teaching. I'm going to build the church. But notice whose church it is. It's Jesus's church. He doesn't say, Peter, I'm going to build you a great church. Right? He doesn't say, Peter, you are going to be the first megachurch pastor. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't say, Peter, you and the disciples, big church, huge church. No, he says, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. See, the church exists for Jesus. The most important thing about our church is Jesus. The most important thing about our church is not the kind of music we sing. The most important thing about our church is not the color of our carpet or the color of our walls or whether the air conditioner or the heater works. The most important thing about our church is the Jesus that we preach, the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus that we proclaim. See, the moment that we fail to make Jesus the most important thing about our church is the moment that we fail to be a church. Jesus is all we have. Right? The gospel is all that we can give. And so this church belongs to Jesus. Now here in verse 18, he says, I will build my church. Now when he says church, that's the, the first time that he uses that word. It's the first time that word's used in the New Testament. Jesus will talk about the church twice. Once here in Matthew 16, another time in Matthew 18. And what he means when he talks about the church, what the New Testament means when he talks about the church, is an assembly of God's people. 
The focus here, though, is not on what the church is, but on who the church belongs to, and the church belongs to Jesus. And Jesus promises this good news for his church. He promises that the gates of hell, or, or the gates of Hades, this is a metaphor for the power of death, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in other words, the power of death will not overpower Jesus. The power of death will not overpower his church. That the church, no matter what the culture throws at it, no matter what the world throws at it, no matter what happens, the church is going to be okay because Jesus Christ has promised to build his church. It's like we saw last week in Revelation, right? That the point of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Well, that's good news for the church because the church is guaranteed to survive. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say that your church is guaranteed to survive. But he says his church, right? The church that he is building, it is guaranteed that he is building it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now notice that the church doesn't just belong to Jesus, but he's also the one who does the building. We don't build the church. Jesus builds the church, right? Jesus uses us to build his church. I'm not handy. I don't build a lot of things, but I wouldn't build a birdhouse and then say the hammer built the house, Right? No, I'd say, I built the house, right? I'm taking the credit for that. In the same way, we don't build the church. Jesus builds the church. We're the hammer, right? We're the screwdriver. Some of us are the crowbar. I, I don't know what, what else, right? And whatever tool it might be. But we are tools that Jesus uses to build the church. It's not built on personalities or, or programs or strategies, though none of those things are bad and they're all necessary. But if Jesus doesn't do the building, then none of it matters. If Jesus isn't the one who builds, then the laborers labor in vain. Now we're coming into my favorite time of the year. Reese's egg season, right? Can I, can I get a witness? Amen. Um, and so uh, Anna will go to the grocery store and when I come home and she comes home and there's a Reese's egg sitting there, uh, I know she loves me. Right? And when there's two, I know she really loves me. And so uh, this, this week I was walking through a store uh, and I saw, uh, I saw some Reese's eggs. And so I stopped and I gave thanks to uh, the father from whom all blessings flow. Uh, and, and then I, I kept walking uh, and I saw the worst Easter candy that has ever been made. Peeps, right? Uh, they're gross. Uh, I don't like them. Uh, I, know, I know some people do, um, and I'm sorry. Uh, but this, this wasn't just Peeps, though. This was uh, a kit that you could buy with Peeps and a cookie coop. So instead of a gingerbread house, uh, we now have Easter cookie coops that you can, you can put your Peeps in. Uh, uh, terrible, right? And as I was looking at this, uh, I started thinking about gingerbread houses and then you've got this cookie coop and I was thinking about, and when I put together a gingerbread house, it never works. Uh, it never, I try to put it up and the thing will fall down. Uh, I'll finally get it kind of standing and someone will bump the table and it'll fall down again. And so what we've, over the last couple of years, I've just seen them. What we've started doing in my house is we buy them already pre-assembled. Right? They're already ready to go. You just have to stick the gumdrops on or whatever it may be. And so I started thinking, man, I wonder how hard it would be to put this cookie coop together. And even once you get it together, how stable is it? Would it last? 
And see, one of the things I know about, at least in my family, is gingerbread houses, you build it, but then you can't eat it. You just have to look at it for a couple days. And then by the time you're ready to eat it, you break a tooth if you try to bite into it, right? It's gone stale. Uh, it's gone hard. That's if it hasn't gotten knocked over first. These things typically don't last. But what we see in this passage is that what Jesus builds lasts, right? That it doesn't pass away. Jesus doesn't build cookie coops, right? Jesus doesn't build gingerbread houses, Jesus builds what doesn't pass away. Jesus builds something that the gates of hell, the power of Satan and death cannot prevail against. See, what Jesus builds is worth giving our lives to. See, it's worth giving our heart. It's worth giving our lives to see Jesus's work finished. To see Jesus's work complete. See, there's a lot of things that you and I can give our hearts and our lives to. There's a lot of things that you and I can give our time and our talent and energy to. And here's the thing. Everything outside of what Jesus is doing, everything that we give our heart and our life and our time and our talents to outside of what Jesus is doing will pass away. Now, that's not to say that those things are bad. Right? I think we should give our, our, our time and our talents and our heart and, and all those things uh, to, to certain things. But everything outside of the church will pass away. And so if you want to give your time, if you want to give your effort, if you want to give your energy to something that matters, to something that isn't going to pass away, then give it to the church. Because you're not giving it to the church, you're giving it to Jesus. Uh, I, I've been coaching T-ball over the last couple of seasons and uh, you know, as I'm, I'm just the assistant coach, I'm not the real coach, right? Uh, I'm just the guy out there herding the cats. Uh, but uh, there are times where I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching some kids play, sometimes my own included, and I think maybe baseball isn't your thing, right? Maybe, maybe T-ball, maybe your time would be better spent uh, pursuing some other things. Now, you can never say that about giving your heart and your life and your time to the ministry of Jesus and His church. And that's what we have been created. That's what we've been called to do, to give our hearts to Jesus. And we know that. We know, right, to give our hearts to Jesus. But what does it mean to give your life to Jesus? It means to give your life to what Jesus has given his life for. See, Jesus gave his life for the church. In the book of Acts, we read that the church was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. See, when Jesus talks about his death, when the New Testament talks about his death, it's a corporate. It, it, it's communal. It's a group. It's the church. And so if Jesus was willing to spill his blood for the church, then I think it would be fair that he would call us to give our lives to the church because in the church, when the church is being serious about what Jesus has called us to be, then we are being serious about seeing the gospel go forward. We're, we're serious about seeing sinners introduced to this same Jesus that gave his life for us. That leads us into this last point that uh, we see the church's uh, confession and the church's foundation. Finally, we see this, the church's commission. See, our church, this church, and really every true church, every church built on Jesus doesn't exist to be a social organization. We don't exist to be a hotel 
for saints. Man, we're a hospital for sinners. We don't exist to be a community improvement organization. Though I think that we should make our community better. I think the community should miss us if we were to close our doors tomorrow. But see, Jesus has given us a clear commission in the New Testament and the success of this commission is guaranteed. See, Jesus is building his church and so the church built on and by Jesus has nothing to worry about. Look at verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. See, Jesus is using symbolism to speak about the authority given to the church. And so he's speaking, once again, right, he's speaking to Peter. But this message is for his disciples and for those who would come after him. And so he's talking about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. These keys, this is a symbol of authority. That Jesus is giving an authority to the church. So this authority that the church has, it's not an authority that is inherent in the church. It's a borrowed authority that Jesus has given the church. And this authority is an authority to preach the gospel. So when we share the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel, whether one-on-one or corporately, what we're doing is we're saying that we speak for God. This is why Paul can say things like, I plead on behalf of God, be reconciled to Christ. This is an authority that we shouldn't take lightly, right? That that Jesus has commissioned us to speak on his behalf, to act as his tool, his mouthpiece, to proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear it. He's giving us the authority to call people to believe in him and to tell them that, hey, if you believe in this, then you get heaven. And if you reject it, then you get hell. See, in other words, Jesus has given us a commission to multiply. We might say it like this, that the church was made to multiply. In fact, it's natural for churches to multiply. That's what healthy churches do. Healthy churches multiply. If you look at the New Testament, what do you see happening when a church is planted? The church is planted, they make disciples, and then they send them out to plant another church in the next city. And on and on it goes. That's the way the gospel spreads in the New Testament. And that's the way that the gospel spreads today. A couple weeks ago, I decided to do something that I've never done before. I decided I was going to spread fertilizer in my yard. So I had these big delusions that I was going to have the best yard on the block, right? That I was going to have great, thick, luscious grass. And so I did some research. I made some phone calls to see what kind of fertilizer I needed to buy. And so uh, I buy uh, the fertilizer that they told me to buy. And I bought a hand spreader and and I spread this fertilizer. And they said, make sure you water it and don't mow it and the grass will come. So I spread this. I water it. uh, I timed my watering to make sure that I got all of the areas and and made sure that I did it at the right time. And today, uh, if you were to walk to my, if you were to walk up to my house, you would see a lush green lawn of weeds. <laughs> you would see thistles and these other flowers that my kids like to pick, but I don't think they're supposed to be there, right? See, what happened was the weeds multiplied. So that's what weeds are supposed to do, right? They, they multiply. They take over. Throw a little fertilizer on them, throw a little water, and here they go. Now, some of you are saying it was because you put the wrong fertilizer on it or whatever. I probably did. But the weeds did what the weeds were supposed to do. The question for us is, is the church doing what the church is supposed to do? Is the church multiplying? Are we multiplying disciples? 
Are we multiplying churches? Now, when we ask it like that, it's easy to say, well, yeah, y'all should be multiplying disciples. Y'all should be multiplying churches. And this is a call for corporate multiplication. But how does the church as a body multiply? Well, the church as a body multiplies when the church's individuals multiply. See, the reason that churches don't multiply in large part is because we as individuals aren't overly concerned with multiplication. We're not overly concerned with evangelism and discipleship. But what we see here is that Jesus has called us, he's commissioned us with that authority to take the gospel to those who need to hear it. We've been called to carry it forward to those who need to believe. Now, Jesus goes on to talk about binding and loosing. This, might, uh, this language might be unfamiliar. So look at verse 19. He says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, uh, this is language that his, his audience would have been familiar with, that, that his disciples would have known, because this is rabbinic language. The rabbis, when they would talk about the law, they would talk about binding and loosing. So to bind something was to forbid it and to loose something was to allow it. And so Jesus says, whatever you forbid, whatever's forbidden, uh, whatever you forbid is forbidden in heaven and whatever you allow is allowed in heaven. Now, this isn't to say that, uh, that God is waiting for us to make a decision and when we make the decision on, on uh, this or that, then that means he makes the decision. Uh, in fact, the way that this is written in the original language is it's written in a way that what the decision was made in heaven and now we're recognizing this decision. But what's he talking about? Binding and loosing. He's talking about another way that the church proclaims the gospel. But this way that the church proclaims the gospel isn't for those outside the church. It's for those inside the church. So the, the binding and loosing here is talking about the, the life and the conduct of those who claim to follow Jesus. See, what we believe is displayed by how we live. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, you have the keys to the kingdom, not just to proclaim the good news to those outside of the church, but also to remind those inside the church that they've been bought with a price and that we've been called to live lives, to walk worthy of the gospel. And so this authority to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and believers, it's a great responsibility. And with this great responsibility comes a great opportunity. See, we have the opportunity to be used by God to proclaim and remind people of the gospel. That's what we've been called to do. That's how Jesus builds his church. And a church built on Jesus, that's what a church built on Jesus does. And a church built on Jesus has nothing to worry about because success is guaranteed. And so churches built by Jesus confess who Jesus really is. That churches built by Jesus are built on who Jesus really is. And they proclaim who Jesus really is to the world. And so as a church, we've got to remember that Jesus has promised to build his church. But we should never presume that Jesus building his church means that Jesus will build our church. See, he doesn't need us, but he invites us into what he's doing and what he will accomplish in the world. See, I'm super excited about what the Lord is doing here at Central. And we got to celebrate baptism, a baptism in the first service. Oh, we're going to celebrate ministry and mission that's happening all over our church and, and all over our community. One of the things I was so excited about uh, in the first service about the baptism that we had is uh, Tiffany, uh, the lady who was baptized, she wasn't led to the Lord by a pastor. 
She wasn't led to the Lord uh, by someone who works for the church by a staff member. She was led to the Lord by a member of the church. One of our members took the call to multiply seriously and shared the gospel with Tiffany and Tiffany was saved. See, we should never assume that God is going to keep using central just because we're central. See, God uses central because we're committed to his mission. So we've got to constantly, both individually and corporately, be seeking to walk with him so that we can be used by him because he's under no obligation to continue using us. But there's a, there's a question we need to ask before we get there. And, and that's this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? So I'm sure that there are some of you here this morning who you've never wrestled with that question of, of who is Jesus. And, and the question is not this. So don't, don't mix it up. The question is not who is Jesus to you. It doesn't matter who Jesus is to you. It matters who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus the Savior, Messiah, who, who lived the perfect life and died in your place and rose again, conquering sin and conquering death, and now if you'll believe in Him, you can have life? Or do you believe that Jesus was just a good teacher, but He's not really God? See, the, the, the testimony of the Bible, the testimony of God's Word, is that Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, He can bridge the gap between God and us, that, that He can reconcile us, that He can make peace between us. Maybe you say, well, that's what the Bible says, but, but how do I know it's true? Well, two ways. One, by faith, right? We're, we're called to exercise faith. But also, as I was studying this passage this week, one of the things that, uh, that I was reminded of again was that 11 of the 12 disciples died. They were martyred for the faith. They died because of the faith. And the last one died in exile because of the faith. And so it's hard for me to believe that, that those who followed Jesus the closest would be confused or mistaken about who Jesus is. They, they saw him with his own eyes. They weren't dying for a lie. They were dying because Jesus is king. And so maybe you need to believe for the first time. Maybe you need to encounter this Jesus who is king for the first time. We want to help you do that. So you can send a text. We mentioned this number earlier in the, uh, the service. It's 407-338-4024. There's a real person on the other end of that line waiting for you to text them so they can start that conversation. You can walk out and hang a right into our next steps room and there are people in there ready to talk with you about what does it mean? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Maybe say, Ethan, I, I, I follow Jesus. I, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a disciple. But man, I've lost my focus on Jesus. I've looked over here and over here and over here, but I need to focus back on Jesus. Here's the good news for you. It's not Jesus who has moved, right? He is still there, still inviting you to know him and be known by him. Maybe you say, Ethan, I need, I need to commit my life to serving the church the way Jesus served the church. I, I need to look for a place to plug in. Well, we've got places for you to do that. You can send that text to 407-338-4024. And there's someone on the other end that can help you get connected help you find a way to serve. You know, one of the questions when Mel Himes baptized in the first service, after he, he baptized Tiffany, uh, he, he asked a question that, 
It's first asked in the book of Acts. He said, here's the water. What prevents you from being baptized? Maybe, maybe you've trusted Jesus. Maybe you're trying to walk with him, but, but maybe you've yet to take that, that first step of obedience. Maybe you've yet to be baptized. And we'd love to talk with you about that. Love to help you and celebrate with you on what the Lord has done in your life. Whatever it is, I know that the Lord is calling us all to take that next step. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done. Uh, Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy today. Lord, thank you that Jesus has come. Uh, thank you that, that you didn't leave us to figure things out on our own, but that you sent the Messiah, you sent Jesus, and that you are building your church on the foundation that he has laid. And Father, I pray that if nothing else, that we would leave here today loving your church more because we see that you love the church. And so Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that maybe there's someone here who need to trust you that today would be the day that they trust you. Maybe there's some who have lost their focus on you, God. I, I pray that you would draw their heart, you would draw their mind, you would draw their eyes back to Jesus. Father, we're grateful that you always meet us with grace. And Lord, we pray that you would do that now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.